but it's not even in the Bible. But it explains it. And I thank God because he blessed us with something called the ability to make a habit. H-A-B-I-T. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 24, a scripture that we should be familiar with. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now what Jesus is saying here, we've all got this idea about what we want to have or what we want to be or what we want to do. And Jesus is asking us to give that up for what he wants us to do. Maybe about the same thing, but it's never the same way. Verse 25 says, For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. If you keep your life and let it be the way you want it to be, then essentially you will lose the life of Jesus Christ. You will. Because you can't do it your way and do it Jesus' way too. And that's something we've got to learn. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall save it. It's a choice we make. Do you want to live the life like Jesus wants you to live or do you want to live the life like you want to live? And we're, we're faced with that. I know as a young man I was faced with that. I was baptized at 10, and it took. And I was a Christian and wanted to have my own way of making my own life. But no, no preacher in my life ever told me I had to live like Jesus. They gave me the idea that Jesus, it was impossible to live like Jesus. But it's not, and Jesus tells us we can have the same life he did. We've got the same things he had, and we can do it just like he did it if we choose to do it. For what, is a, what, for what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Now I've got written in my scripture there, what will he get in exchange for his soul? Because see what we do, we give up a lot of things in order to live for Jesus. And we get a lot of things because we're living for Jesus. So the thing is, what would you give up the life that Jesus has planned for you in order to have your own stuff, whatever it is? And we're faced with that. And it's every day of our life. And then we get to a place to where we don't want everything. We don't want to be a millionaire. We don't want to have the biggest house in town. We don't want to drive the biggest car in town. There's still things that we have to make decisions about every day. And some of them may seem like little things, but my book says in Proverbs that it's the little foxes that eat up your garden. It's not the big foxes. So Jesus said, whoever is faithful in much will be faithful in a little, and whoever is faithful in a little will be in a much. So there's not any big thing, no such thing as a little thing with Jesus. Every decision we have to make that involves him 
is a big thing. For the Son of Man shall come in his glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Now we know and we've been taught that every believer gets heaven. But every believer doesn't get that many rewards. Rewards are given for work. Heaven is given for salvation. But after we become a Christian, God says we are created for something called good works. And the good works in our life is those things that God expects us to do. The things that God tells us to do. Not things that we get out here and decide we're going to do to please Jesus on our own. It's called obedience. And to listen to Him and do what He asks us to do. So the question is, we gain His world, His idea of what our life ought to be, and we lose our lives, what we wanted it to be. But we wind up with all the perks because we get the life of Jesus if we choose right. So the question comes up, if this is facing you, if you face this on a daily basis of trying to do what you want to do or what God wants you to do, I had the question asked to me, what life are you waiting to live? What life are you waiting to live when you're making your own decisions rather than doing what he wants you to do? So let me ask you this. Have you ever thought about when a person suddenly changes his mind about something? We've been watching these candidates and trying to make up our minds on some of these people amongst a sea of lies. There are lies everywhere. They've got to be lies because two people are saying two different things and only one of them can be the truth. So what do you do? And we've been looking at that. Well, how does a man change his attitude or his opinion about any person or about anything? It's because of something he learns. <laughs> you think you want this guy right here or this woman right here in that office, and all of a sudden you read something one day about what they did years ago, and all of a sudden you wouldn't vote for him if your life depended on it. That's what happens. You learn things about people, and all of a sudden, they don't hold the same place in your mind that they used to hold. And it's all about learning. And that's what we learned that consciousness is about, is about knowing about something. How do you, what do you think is right and wrong? Is your conscience, if it's allowed to, will train you to believe wrong. But if it's, if it's trained right, it'll, it'll, it'll hold, build a standard in you and you will attempt to start living up to your standard. The Bible told us three weeks ago that the heart, according to the Bible, is everything inside of you that you make decisions with, that forms your opinions, is your heart. It's your heart, it's your brain, it's your mind, it's your, your conscience. Anything that causes you to make a decision, the Bible calls your heart. And it was an interesting thing in one place that in the King James uses the term bowels. 
And a writer made a good point. He said, we, I've had preachers, he said, tell me that that didn't mean bowels, it meant heart. But he said, let me ask you something. When you go to worrying about something, does it give you heart problems or does it give you ulcers? He said, the Bible wasn't wrong. The Bible says your heart, I mean your bowels is a place that gets the punishment when you're upset about something. You get upset stomach. You get ulcers. You get all kind of things happening to you. Your bowels. And he said, so the Bible's right. It's not wrong. It doesn't need correcting if we just think about it right. So the question is, what is this life of Christ that we're talking about? What does it involve? It involves everything we talk about here on Sunday morning. It involves everything you read about in this book. But a life of Christ, like Christ lived it, was this. A life that automatically does God's will without thinking. Now when you automatically do something without thinking, that's called nowadays a habit. You do it out of habit. A fellow brought up the thing about driving an automobile. He said, remember when you were trying to learn to drive a car? And somebody, maybe your mama, your daddy was trying to show you. It was the most complicated thing in the whole world. You had a steering wheel up here that put it where it needed to be. You had a stick over here that put it in the gear. You had a hole in the, either in the dash or in the, in, the, in, in the column that you didn't need to scratch up with the key. And then, and you had them two pedals in the floor, sometimes three. And you had to keep all those things going at one time. And then all of a sudden you had a white line down the middle of where you're supposed to go. You had to keep it over here and you couldn't get too far because there was a ditch over there. And then you had road signs. And then you had crazy people driving all around you doing all kind of things and not staying where they're supposed to stay. And he said, think about it. How much thought it took for you to figure out how to do something as simple as driving an automobile. I know some young people that never went to the trouble to learn. My grandfather got in one one time, cussed a thing because it ran in the ditch, and got out and never drove again. He drove a team of mules to town every Saturday. Didn't want to have anything to do with a car. I asked him one time when we picked him up to carry him to the house on Sunday, to eat Sunday dinner, why did he always want to ride in the front? And I was about 10 or 11, and he turned around and told me it was because he didn't want nobody to get there ahead of him. He wouldn't ride in the back seat. You couldn't haul him anywhere that he'd get in the back seat. He wanted to ride in the front. But think about brushing your teeth. You got to take the tube, you got to squeeze it from the bottom, right? You got to take the top off first, squeeze it from the bottom, put it on your brush, put a little water on it. You got to brush up and down this way. You got to brush sideways. You got to get in the cracks. You got to get between your teeth. You got to do all this kind of stuff. How many things do you do today in a day, a normal day for you that you never think about? 
Nowadays, people can have a conversation with another person. Both of you walk to the car, one get in the driver's side, doesn't get in the passenger's side, and continue that argument in the car and do all those things that you were used to so worried about doing without ever even thinking about it one time. Isn't it something that God would give us the capacity to do things every day, to go through our life every day and do things without ever stopping to think about them? Because if you had to think about which way you're going to turn your toothbrush and how you're going to work it with your teeth, you could be midnight getting out of the house in the morning. But we don't do that. Why? Because of habit. Because of habit. Now, if you want to live the life that Jesus wants you to live, number one, you don't argue with the Holy Spirit. You do what he tells you to do. You don't argue with your conscience. You do what your conscience tells you to do because once you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit is the one that forms your conscience into a Christian conscience. The conscience that becomes seared, as the Bible calls it, desensitized is the word when you don't pay any attention to your conscience. Your conscience can't dictate to you what you need to do or don't need to do. You can do anything. You do that by ignoring your conscience or either arguing with it and not paying any attention to it. True guilt Now think of this. The conscience doesn't hurt you, but it causes you to hurt because of something you don't do right. The conscience creates a standard in you of things you will accept and things you will not accept. It's this thing about what's right and what's wrong and where you go to find out what is right and what is wrong. But the guilt in your conscience comes from violating the standard that your conscience has created in you, whatever that is. Now there's something interesting about violating your standard. Guilt coming from violating your standard can only be dealt with by dealing with the violation. You understand me now? Sin can't be undone. The only thing you can do in your life about sin is to ask forgiveness for it. It can't be undone. It can only be forgiven. So you can't go undo something you've done that's considered sin. But you can ask forgiveness for it if you are a Christian. So let me say this, and this is one issue I've got with the present day psychiatrist and psychoanalyst and psychologist and whatever. You go one of them with guilt. They know, they've learned, even though that the four people that started the whole science of psychiatry were atheists. They didn't believe in a God. But they have learned that guilt is the problem. Most people's sickness is caused by guilt. 
and guilt can actually kill you. Violating your standard and producing, having guilt produced by your conscience in your body can actually make you sick. And what they do, rather than deal with the violation that caused the sickness and the guilt, they try to ease the pain of the guilt by medication. You cannot rid the body of guilt with medication. You can only rid the body of legitimate guilt by dealing with the violation that caused the guilt. And we talk, Paul talks about all through Scripture about living a clear, having a clear conscience before God. He lived in such a way to where if his conscience says, don't do that, he'd quit. He wouldn't do it. He wouldn't go against his conscience. And he understood some kind of way. I guess Jesus must have explained it to him when he was in the desert those three years. But he knew better than to go against his conscience because he knew it would produce guilt and make him sick. He had studied Psalms and saw where David said that when he had sinned and nobody had brought it up and they were all dealing with it because he was the king and nobody would say anything and God told that old prophet, you go to David and you tell him. And when he shook that finger at David, David knew all of a sudden, he knew what he'd done with Bathsheba, but nobody said anything about it. And when he found out that it was public and everybody in the country knew about it, he immediately fell on his knees and asked God to forgive him. So we have got built into us things that I've learned that are built there by God that I've never thought about is built into our situation to keep us straight, to keep us like God wants us to be. Now remember this, please. Like I said a minute ago, the Bible says that everything in us that causes us to make decisions is called the heart. Now, before we're saved, we're talking about the old man, the old generation. He has an old heart. But once you're saved, Jesus gives you a new heart. And that new heart is the only one that allows us to be obedient to Jesus Christ. So when you get Jesus, you get a new heart with it. Now here's some issues, and I hope to be able to be able to deal with some of this in sermons that are coming up. But the Christian Counselor talks about a man who is saved after he's grown. And he's developed all these sinful habits. All the things that God would prefer for his children not to do. And now he's got a new heart, but he's got all this sinful way of thinking. And he's got all kind of things that he does that God would not have him do. And so then he's got to go in there and start changing all his habits that are habitual things that he's not supposed to do. And the new creation, 
the new man with a new heart, hear me, is not going to change everything in two days, folks. He's not going to do it. And that's the reason when I hear about somebody just being born again, I start looking for change. That's one thing I think that I have talked about with our government up there. Somebody asked me, so why in the world would all evangelicals put this man in office? I said, well, you've got to understand something about folks in the Bible Belt. They believe that when a man gets Jesus, when he shows that he has Jesus, he's fixing to change, and they start looking for him. They do, because they see it that way. It's bad when people profess to know Jesus on the outside, and you are with them all week long in their job and at work, and you don't see any changes. You don't see any changes in their, in their speech, in their thinking, in their dealing with one another and whatever. You don't see anything. Jesus is going to change people if he's in there. You can believe that. The Bible tells that from one end to the other. But an unsaved man has an old heart. Now I want to read you something the Bible says about this old heart. It's in Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9. It says the heart it doesn't say old heart. It says the heart. But we know because we know about old hearts and new hearts. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? They're talking about the, this heart of an unsaved person. One of the people that I read says that the only thing that can come out of an old heart is sin. Don't expect anything else. But this right here says that the heart is deceitful above all things. That word deceitful in a Bible dictionary says that your heart, before you are saved, lies in the bushes waiting to jump on you and, get, and do you in. Your own heart is trying to trip you up and make you do something bad so you can't pay any attention to it. Now, when Jesus gives you a new heart, that new heart has capabilities of making you obey Jesus, learning to obey Jesus. But I'm going to tell you something. There's some old things that you still do because of your habits that you automatically do and you don't even think about it. A new Christian ought to have an open mind that when people say, you know, you're a Christian now, you really ought not to be doing this. He ought not to get mad at them and want to burn a cross in front of their house because a Christian needs an open mind because he a lot of times does not know. It's like Paul said, I wouldn't even known what coveting is if the law hadn't have told me that I lust. So you see, there's all kind of things as we come together and Jesus Pre, uh, or, or prayed in chapter 17 of John that we would do that. We'd have hearts all alike and we'd all believe the same thing. Well, that means too then that you've got to have consciences pretty much alike. In other words, to tolerate the same kinds of things and believe that the same kind of things is all right to do. But the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. I looked up that terminology and it says that the heart of an unsaved person is incurably sick. Incurably sick. 
Can you imagine the diagnosis of having a disease that the doctor just told you is terminal? Terminal. That means it's going to kill you. To have an incurably sick heart is what unsaved folks are walking around with, according to this Bible. So the heart of all the people around you who do not have Jesus is as the Bible describes it. I believe that. We don't see it that way, but I believe it. It says in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 14 that the evil men lie in wait to deceive you. They're hiding in the bushes trying to jump out and do you harm. Unsaved men around you. But a new heart, like I said, allows us to follow, follow God. Now, let's mention a thing about this thing called habit. Once I understood that the habit thing is such a big thing in everybody. It's a God-given thing that works in everybody. Sometimes it works for the good, sometimes it works for the bad. But a habit is something you do without even thinking about and you know how to do it. Like, which shoe do you put on first in the morning? I bet money if the bet was made, if odds were created about which shoe you put on first, you'd put the same one on way more times first than you put the other one on. Judy was talking about her dad a while ago. He did something I've never seen another person do in my whole life. He'd put his coat on in front of him with both arms in the sleeves. You remember that? Put both arms in a coat sleeve and then he'd put it over his head like that. I've never seen anybody do that. You put it in the sleeve, and you put it in that sleeve, and you pull it up around you. He didn't do it that way. And he always put his coat on that way. Looked like he'd knock his hat off or mess his hair up or something, but that's the way he did it. And he was good at it too. But he had learned by habit, for some reason or another, to put his coat on that way. And he always did it the same way. I have mentioned to people about training horses. A horse that is trained that you can take and show and win with is a horse that has had so many things repeated to him over and over and over that he automatically does this thing this way. If you've ever trained a dog and you tell him down, he has learned that when he hears the word down, he goes down. He doesn't think about it. He doesn't say, where do I need to go down? He just goes down. He'll go down in an ain't bed if you tell him to go down in an ain't bed. So what I'm trying to say, animals all do things by habit. I train cutting horses. A cutting horse cannot be shown in front of a cow with you reining him where he needs to go, with you telling him where he needs to go. Once he gets that cow out, you've got to drop your reins down on his neck, and every time that horse does something wrong, as much as a foot not being in the right place with that cow, they mark him a point off, a point off, a point off. 
you can lose a whole cutting that you paid $500 entry for for three of those. For three of those. These horses have had this thing repeated to them so many times that when a cow does this, that horse does this. And if he's good enough to do that, he can win. But it takes two years to train a horse to do that with a cow so he can win for you. This thing of habit, and a horse will do what he habitually does over and over and over, and if he ever learns a bad habit, it's almost impossible to train him out of it. And that's with people. People are the same way. And they learn so many of the same things the same way as animals do. I looked up the old and the new archaic and the contemporary definitions of habit. Now listen to this. The capacity to learn to respond unconsciously, automatically, and comfortably to whatever stimulates you. Respond unconsciously without thinking about it, automatically, and comfortably. Becky was home last night. She was up here checking out a new girl to play ball for her, and I started talking to her about batting. I've seen some of these, these, these girls in these games, and guys too, maybe you've seen them, that he's a guy who's hit 115 home runs or something like that. You watch them when they get to bat. And even a designated hitter, when the coach puts him in the game because they're losing the game, the game's all on him. He knows when he steps up to bat that everybody watching on TV and the stands there at the game, whatever, are depending on him to hit one out of the park to win the game. And you see some of them, and they are perfectly comfortable standing up there with a whole load on them. They really are. You see some of them that are up there fidgeting because they're uncomfortable. To be really, really good at what you do is to do it unconsciously, automatically, and comfortably. I thought about Jimmy driving a truck. When you drive a truck long enough, with all that goes on around you, you can sit up there comfortably and do it until somebody in a Volkswagen wheels in front of you and don't give you room to stop, and they never realize that an 80,000-pound rig can't stop between here and where he's sitting. It takes longer than that. And if you plug his distance up, he can't stop. You have just caused your own wreck. And for people to be able to handle the responsibilities like that with skill and do it comfortably speaks of the capacity to learn to do something like that, that well. Another definition, an acquired mode of behavior that has become nearly or completely involuntary. You do it without even thinking about it. Beck told me last night that there was no such thing. Now, she is a college coach. 
So I'm taking her word for it. She's done all kind of studies about this thing, and she said there is no such thing as muscle memory. She said your muscles do not have the capacity to act. Where your so-called muscle memory comes from is out of your brain. Your brain's the only thing that's got the capacity to make something happen with your muscles. Your muscles don't have memory. But you can train your brain to where when you see that ball in a particular place, you can knock it out of the park. A lot of the batters who are some of the best in the business stand waiting on that pitch that they're looking for, and it never comes. They could hit it out of the park if it would, but the pitcher won't throw it. An acquired mode of behavior that had become nearly or completely involuntary. That's habit. something you do without thinking. That is the life that Christ asked you to lead for him. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul being caught in a situation to where he had to stop? Let me see what's right about that. Let me see how I need to answer this. When it came to things about Jesus, he did it without thinking. That's the way Jesus wants us, to be able to do what we do without having to stop and think about it. With all of that in mind, turn to Hebrews chapter 5. I want to show you something. That habit, word habit, is not in the Bible. But there's another word that I think that means exactly the same thing. And I've studied both of them now for two weeks. And I believe it is the very same thing. And it comes from the fifth chapter of Hebrews, and it starts with verse 12. Hebrews 5, 12. Apollos, who I think is the author of Hebrews, is writing this, and here's what he says in verse 12 of chapter 5. For when... For when for the time, or I've got written in my Bible, though by this time, he says, you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. In other words, Apollos says, you've been at it long enough, you ought to be a teacher. You ought to be able to teach what you know about the Bible, about God about the Jesus. But we find that instead of that, you are such that need to be taught again to self. The very first things you learned about Jesus, the sayings of Jesus. And are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. I thought about this. You can't give a milk baby a chunk of tough steak it's got onions and peppers on it. You just can't. I mean, you can imagine what a baby would do when it hit his mouth. And that's what he's talking about here. As a baby Christian, you can't eat meat. You can't eat six ounces of ribeye. You just can't. Because you can't chew it. You don't have any teeth. You got to have milk. 
For everyone that uses milk, spiritually speaking, he says, is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he's a baby. So we've got baby Christians out there that don't know a lot about what the book says. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age. A mature person eats steak. Even those who by reason of use, there it is, that's habit, reason of use, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Now let me tell you what that verse says. By reason of use, that's habit. You use something enough to where the reason of that use is that you learn to use it. Like a baseball bat or a tool or anything else a, a person might make you live with. Woman in the kitchen. She uses tools so much that she uses them without even thinking about it. Have their senses exercised. Now what that means, senses is organs of perception. So those senses that you have that perceive things, what the five senses, sight, hearing, smell, and taste, and what's that, feel? Is that it? The five senses? You have taken your senses, your body, the things that cause you to make decisions, the things that cause you to know how to do things without thinking about them, you have taken those and you have used them in an activity over and over and over the same way. As you get a new tool, you start using it, and after a while you learn how to use it right, and then you always choose to use it that way again because that's the way it works best. And when you get all the kinks worked out of it, as we say, you know how to use it. By reason of use, you have exercised your senses. That word exercise means trained. Now, I thought this was kind of weird the way they talk, but the, the word exercised or trained, you've trained your senses to where they respond a particular kind of way. And if you've trained them right, they know the difference between right and wrong. But the word is gymnazo. The word that we get our, our word today, gymnasium, from. Because the word gymnazo actually means naked. Now what does that have to do with training naked? The guys who competed and trained in the Olympic Games in Rome always trained and competed without any clothes on. So the term naked means the same thing as an athlete who works out, because that was the only athletes they had, was the Olympic, Olympians. And so the word that we now get gymnasium for, or gymnastics, all those words that have that GM deal, meant to start with 
they used the term for naked as the term for training an athlete. To discern, and that means to discriminate or decide both good and evil. Now look, let me go back and read that thing based on the definition. But strong meat belongeth to them that are mature. People that are mature. Even those who by reason of use or habit have their senses trained to discern both good and evil. The title of this sermon was to train your mind. That's what God wants you to do. You train your mind based on something to determine for yourself that standard we talked about a while ago that your conscience puts in you. There are some things I can remember. I knew a man one time. First thing he did every morning was to reach up on top of the cabinet and get down a glass. It was a little water glass about that tall. And he took out a bottle of whiskey and he poured whiskey in that glass. And he backed up and looked at it and he'd look at it. I have even seen him when he poured too much pour some of it back in the bottle until he got it just right. And he took one, took that one swig, he put his glass back up on top of the cabinet, and he wouldn't touch a drink any other time. You could offer him a beer during the day, and he acted like you had completely insulted him by even suggesting that he might drink it. I was in his kitchen one time when he wasn't at home and I went and got that glass down to see if I could see where that line was on that glass. There wasn't one. There was an imaginary line that he poured that whiskey to. And he did it one time every day and that's all he did it. Now the old folks in my life, people had rules. They had standards. And they lived by their standards. Might not be yours, might not be right, might not be good, but they live by rules. And I think today we've lost a lot of that. And in trying to figure out why we might have, it's because so many of them went through situations to where they didn't have the means to do like we have to do today. They didn't have all the choices we've got today. They had to do with what they had to do with. And they developed rules for themselves and that's what this whole thing is talking about. It's talking about the life of Christ is an acquired mode of behavior that you create based on your choices. And you say, this is going to be my standard from now on. I can remember an ignorant little boy that made a promise to God that from then on he was going to do everything that the Bible said he was supposed to do. He didn't make it. He made a lot of mistakes. But he promised God that that was what he was going to do. And there's a lot of things he didn't know any better about. 
That's the thing that I so appreciate about 1 John 1, 9, that if we ask God to forgive us for our sins, he's faithful to forgive us for all the sins that we do that we don't even know about. Amen. Yes, sir. You're right. Amen. God is so good that even though he commands us to ask forgiveness for our sins, and I've known people who had the habit of asking forgiveness all day long, every day. And still, he forgives us for sins that we don't know about. All we've got to do is to be faithful to ask him about the ones we do know about, and he forgives us for those that we don't know about. That is the life of Christ. That is the thing that Jesus says, if you would come after me, deny yourself. Take away your plans. Take on my plans. Take up your cross. Daily. Every day you do it. And follow me. That's what's expected of us. And I know this sinner comes far short of that. I know that. But here's the thing that I discern, I discovered with studying the new thing about consciences. I didn't know about consciences like I do now. I didn't know about habit. I didn't think about this strong thing in us that makes us do things a particular kind of way without ever even thinking about it. It's called habit. And these two things are so strong in our lives. I have tried to emphasize the importance of the Holy Spirit of God guiding us. But we've got other things that guide us too. And they're habit and they're conscience. And we can create bad habits or we can create good habits. If we see we've got a bad habit, I've had people tell me, well, you know, I'm just kind of that way. I say, well, quit being that way then, because God don't like it. And we got that away before we knew better. But I tell you what we do, if we work hard enough at it, we can change it a little. And we just say to ourselves, I'm not going to let you do that anymore, self. And we quit. And after a while, there's another thing, too, that we'll probably talk about later. In the fourth chapter of Ephesians, when Paul talks about let him that steals, steal no more. And he asked the question, when is a thief not a thief? You know when that is? When he's not stealing? No. If he's tempted, he'll steal again. So he's still a thief, right? you got to not only quit stealing, you've got to, like Paul says, go to work. Make enough money to where you can give it to other people who have a need. And after a while, you become that person that everybody knows is a fellow who's always giving money to somebody else. So surely that guy wouldn't steal. <laughs> so that's the way you get rid of the handle of being a thief, by replacing it with something that's good. We're going to talk more about this because it's such a strong force, I think, in all Christians and Satan knows all about these things. He knows all about habit. He knows all about your conscience. And he knows about training. And he knows about discipline. And he tries to break all that down in the life of each one of us. 
I thank the Lord for teaching me those things. I hope I've been able to show you some of that. I thank you also for the testimony about dads. And with all that being said, let's pray. Lord, thank you for fathers. Thank you for Father's Day. Thank you for those who have shared with us their relationships with their fathers. Thank you for teaching us, for continuing to teach us every day how to be a Christian, how to live as your child, how to live in such a way that you would approve of. We've got to realize that Jesus is our example. So whatever we can do more like Jesus did it, we'll be more approved of. We thank you for this, for teaching us, for creating us with all these characteristics. In Christ's name we pray, amen.